Kia ora, and welcome to a special podcast. This one's about the electricity industry, and we go into quite a bit of depth about what's going on with prices, dividends, profits, investment plans, our climate change situation, and what our government is doing or not doing about all of these issues. This week, we got a report from the CTU, First Union, and 350 Aotearoa about dividends paid by the big four gin tailors in our electricity sector. So Jen Taylor is a fantastic portmanteau of uh, and a New Zealand one for generator retailer in the electricity sector. So the big four are Meridian Energy, which has quite a few of those big old dams down in the South Island, including Manapuri, and it supplies power directly to TY Point down at the bottom of the island, right next to Invercargill at Bluff. Then there is Mercury, used to be called Mighty River Power. Mercury's base is the uh, hydroelectric dams on the Waikato River and a few other bits and pieces. Then we have Genesis, Genesis Energy, and it has a bunch of assets, but uh, its biggest and most well-known one is at Huntley, which is a former coal-only fired plant built in particular to supply Auckland and to be what's called a swing supplier. So when you have a drought and there isn't enough water in the lakes and you need to suddenly supply a lot of power to somewhere nearby because, for example, there's no water in the lakes and suddenly you have a cold snap and everyone wants to turn on their heaters, then you need to be able to quickly fire up uh, uh, an electricity plant and Coal and gas are really suited to that. You don't have to worry about whether the wind's blowing or whether the sun is shining. And so over the years, that Huntley plant has become increasingly important. Firstly, it was uh, converted from just a coal plant into a coal and gas plant. And the preference, of course, is to burn gas because it's not quite as bad for the planet. Uh, however, uh, and, and for a long time there was talk of phasing out the entire plant, um, however that hasn't happened for a bunch of reasons and it's at the core of the problem identified in this particular report this week and in other reports over, the, over recent years. This is all about the big gen tailors being able to make big profits from assets that were built through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, mostly hydroelectric, uh, using the savings and investments of taxpayers who paid very high taxes through the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Those hydroelectric dams largely stopped being built after uh, the end of the Muldoon government and the beginning of the Resource Management Act, which was in fact a reaction to the Muldoon government's uh, ramming through of proposals to build dams. The Clyde Dam uh, project, which eventually involved Muldoon uh, riding over the top of objectors and ramming it through Parliament, was, I think, one of the main reasons we had the Resource Management Act. And uh, all of this means that these large companies uh, were created out of the electricity system that existed before 1996 and uh, the various assets were carved up into individual companies. Now, Contact was the first of those state-owned enterprises that was sold in 1999 and partially listed. It's been on and off market a couple of times, but it's now fully listed on the New Zealand stock market. And then the other three, Meridian, Mighty River, or what we, what's now called Mercury and Genesis, have had been state-owned fully until 2014 when the John Key Bill English government, which had asked permission at the 2011 election, sold 49% stakes in these companies in stock market floats. They didn't get quite as much as they expected, uh, just less than $5 billion for those three companies, but since 2014, both national and labour-led governments have collected very large dividends from these companies. And all of them, collectively, have actually paid out more in dividends than they made in net profits. And through that process, 
particularly in the early 2000s, less so in the last 10 years or so, we've seen very significant price increases for that electricity from assets which had already been bought and paid for. And you might ask, how is that possible? Uh, Sure, when we've had a drought and you have to burn a bunch of coal and gas, that could be expensive and you could see why you have to pay extra for electricity then. But the fundamental costs of that water going through those dams, A, the water is not being paid for, and uh, B, those dams were built and paid for and the debt's been paid off long time ago. However, they're valued as assets on the books of these companies and they have shareholders to keep happy. And in the case of the three Gentailers, that includes the 51% shareholder, which is the government, and in particular, Treasury, which over the years has been happy to say there should be lots and lots of dividends coming to the government from these assets, in part because at the time, in 2014 through 2017, the then national government was looking to reduce its deficit, get back into surplus and repay debt. Remember, there was quite a bit of debt built up through the global financial crisis, 2008, 9, 10, 11, and then 2010, 11 were the Christchurch earthquakes and quite a bit of rebuild spending after that. So from 2014 to 2017, the government was very focused on reducing its deficit and reducing its debt. And one convenient way to do that is to get some big juicy dividends from the big gentailers. The same actually happened after Labour was elected in 2017. Interestingly, in the last couple of weeks, the Reserve Bank has confirmed that from 2017 to 2020, the then Labour government actually ran contractionary fiscal policy. And one way it was able to do that was to collect big dividends from the the gentailers. And over the years, we've seen an excess of dividends over net profits from those gentailers since 2014 of $3.5 billion, according to the report out this week. And so the question is, were those dividends too much? What impact did it have on the investment plans for those gentailers? And how is it affecting our transition, hopefully a just transition, from being mostly renewable electricity powered to an economy with hopefully almost all renewable electricity powered and not just for households and businesses that use electricity, but for the transport sector. So we're going to have to move a lot of cars and trucks to electricity. And of course, the industrial sector, the likes of Fonterra, New Zealand Steel, a whole bunch of others that use an awful lot of coal to create or to dry milk powder and um, turn iron ore into steel. And the idea is that that has to be converted into electric Uh, powered boilers and other electric um, measures. So there's a lot of extra work that the electricity industry has to do in our transition to carbon zero by 2050. And this has been known about for quite some time. So you'd think that the electricity companies would be madly investing in new generation, particularly of wind and solar, particularly now that wind and solar is getting cheaper, uh, cheaper relative to gas and coal, and actually cheaper, in nominal terms, particularly for solar, than it was uh, many years ago. However, we haven't seen that, in large part because the spare money generated from the profits was paid out straight away as dividends. The companies themselves would argue that uh, there wasn't lots of extra demand from consumers and businesses over the last 10 years or so, even though there was a lot of talk of increased demand and a transition towards electric-powered transport and the decarbonisation of industry. And so the, sh- the directors and the boards of these companies said, well, it sort of doesn't make sense for us to invest in extra capacity when it's not clear to us there's going to be extra demand. Well, uh, the problem here, of course, is the stuff can't be switched on at the drop of a hat. You have to make a call about investing ahead of the curve. Unless, of course... It actually makes sense from a Jen Taylor point of view not to build the extra capacity. Because remember, in the current version of our wholesale electricity market, the price is set by the marginal production unit. So every extra unit of electricity that's needed has to be supplied. 
Now often that's supplied by just opening the tap a bit more on the dam and pumping a bit more electricity in from the hydroelectric system. But when you've got a drought or when you've got a relative shortage of hydroelectric, you have to turn on the gas or the coal. And you can't always rely on the wind uh, or solar. In fact, we don't have much um, solar in our overall network. And so um, what that means is the companies, uh, perversely, actually profit a lot more by not building new renewable because they can rely on turning on extra coal and gas to get a higher price for the marginal unit, which, remember, applies across all of the units that they sell. Now, not everyone uh, buys electricity on the wholesale market. A lot of big industrial users do. And, of course, competitors for the big gentailers have to buy on the wholesale market. Many of them have been driven out of business. They don't believe that the market runs fairly. They allege that the big companies have made it very difficult for them to hedge or to buy effectively insurance against big spikes or drops in electricity prices. And that over the years you've seen an increase in the wholesale price. And the power companies not necessarily passing it all on to their existing retail customers, therefore uh, having some, uh, in the view of competitors, unfair competition. All of this means that there are a lot of complaints about whether the wholesale market is serving consumers and whether it's allowing us to do a just transition to carbon zero. So it's not just uh, the two union groups and the climate activist group who are saying this. The major electricity users group, which includes the likes of Ontario and New Zealand Steel, so not exactly a bunch of socialists, uh, have also accused the gentailers of making super profits and um, operating a market which suits the companies rather than consumers. And the Electricity Authority has made various comments over the years about the market not being perfect and pointed in particular to the behind-the-scenes deals that were done between Meridian and Contact a few years ago to ensure that the 13% power supply from Manapuri, which is currently going to the TY Point smelter, continued to go to TY Point and wasn't dumped onto the market and drove down the overall price for electricity. Effectively, subsidies were paid by Meridian and Contact to ensure that TY Point stayed uh, to the to the effect of about $200 per, per consumer, the uh, Electricity Authority reckons. So we have this report saying the companies have overpaid dividends, more than their profits, haven't invested in new supply, and the government, of course, is very involved here. Now, the government, in theory, should be regulating uh, the electricity market in the, uh, in the benefit, for the benefit of consumers to make sure that electricity is affordable and reliable. And so it is in charge of the Electricity Authority and the Commerce Commission. And, uh, however, it's also the 51% owner of three of the biggest players. And Treasury has uh, said it would quite like these extra dividends to come so it can repay debt and reduce the size of deficits. And this is obviously an issue at the moment, with the government having run up big deficits during COVID. Now, this is just a step back a bit. What is actually going on here? in terms of the political economy of these big decisions and ownerships and uh, decisions, choices about investments and dividends and repaying debt. So uh, remember that most of the industry is still owned by the state and was originally built by the state and done in the interests of consumers and taxpayers to provide reliable and affordable electricity. And a long time ago, before the advent of the electricity market and the sale of these companies, the government, it could be argued, provided very low-cost and subsidised electricity to consumers. It it also um, forced industrial buyers and businesses to pay more than consumers. And uh, part of the reason for the reforms in the late 1990s was to uh, remove these subsidies in effect that businesses were paying across to consumers and in the event we saw a significant increase in prices for consumers partly as that subsidy was unwound but partly as the companies built up significant profit margins 
and started paying significant dividends to shareholders, including the government. So in effect, we have decisions being made here by the state, by the government, to instead of invest in new renewable electricity generation, the government, by design or by emission, has decided it would prefer to reduce its debt and have lower government debt and lower budget deficits than have increased capacity for renewable generation and lower prices for consumers. Now, that is uh, a choice, and you can sort of see why you'd make it. Uh, Surely, low debt, and remember, every time a government reduces its debt relative to uh, what it had before, all other things being equal, you'll see a reduction in interest rates. And this is where we start to get into some interesting political economy territory. Why would a government want lower deficits and lower debt and lower interest rates? How does that benefit consumers and voters? Assuming, of course, that governments do everything in their own interests to ensure that they get re-elected or voted in to start with. Remember that we don't have an economy that's like a normal economy. We have an economy which is, in effect, a housing market with bits tacked on, where most households understand the way to get ahead is to buy some residential land, hopefully with debt, and so when the price rises of that land, you make leveraged gains in the equity you have on that land, and it is tax-free because we're the only country in the developed world without a capital gains tax. So what do you need to happen if you are a median voter in the suburbs who owns your own home, who knows that you can't get ahead from your job or savings, that the only way to get ahead is to have lots of residential zoned land that you leverage up and collect the profits from in the long run tax-free. Well, you certainly don't want new houses being built anywhere near you. That increases the supply of land, which might reduce the value of your land, which is already zoned and supplied with electricity and power and roads and the likes. So what you don't want is extra supply of residential zoned land with all the connections to power and roads and broadband and water. So in the eyes of a voter and a ratepayer, the last thing you want is lots of extra infrastructure development to cope with extra population growth. And that's why um, there are two or three key decision makers in any decision to create a new suburb or to um, add extra capacity for infill housing or brownfields housing. There's two or three players you need to convince. A, you need to convince the council because it's going to be building a lot of the roads and the footpaths and the bus stations and the train stations, buying extra fleets of buses, uh, making sure there are playing fields, all of those things. About half of the infrastructure for roads and public transport and water. And the other half comes from the government itself through NZTA, Waka which pays for some of the public transport stuff, a lot of the motorways, and of course all the schools and hospitals that have to be built to cope with that population growth. But there are other players, and one of the big players is the electricity sector. Uh, not just in terms of electricity generation, in terms of you know having a big power plant or a wind farm or a solar farm, uh, but actually also the electricity distribution networks. And they don't get a lot of attention, and I suspect in the years to come they'll get a lot more attention because they're often the limiting factor in whether or not you can handle new population growth. So, from the point of view of a median voter, the last thing you want is extra infrastructure investment in, in the networks for electricity, public transport, water, to build anyone build anything near you that would reduce the value of your property. The other thing you want is permanently falling and low interest rates. Remember, for every asset, like a chunk of land or a bond, whenever you have a permanent fall in interest rates, you increase the value of that asset. 
because its cash generation capacity has effectively increased relative to other um, cash generating assets like bonds and uh, and therefore um, you can effectively pay more for that asset and the value of the asset goes up. So remember, if you're a median voter, what you want is no infrastructure investment and lower interest rates, which is exactly what you get with a government that chooses to keep debt low, keep deficits low, and not invest in the infrastructure for growth. That is the story of how our government of both colours has run for the last 30 years. It has lived off the extra investment that was done through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and into the 80s by a generation, a post-war generation of uh, workers who paid high tax rates, who decided not to consume, so they had very limited things they could spend their money on, they didn't have a lot of imports, they couldn't go travelling, but they invested an awful lot in dams and roads and new suburbs. Remember, a lot of the spending for that was done by the Ministry of Works centrally. It's no longer done that way. It's, uh, that cost is forced down to the, um, the councils. So the complaints in this report, and many others, is that we have continually starved our economy of infrastructure investment and run extremely low debt levels and low tax levels to ensure that whoever's in power stays in power or gets into power by promising low taxes and low interest rates. And that's where we are at the moment. Uh, the government, you'd think, because it talks a lot about improving productivity and investing in infrastructure uh, for housing and improving housing affordability, has not done that. I asked Grant Robertson... Uh, and you can hear the um, interview or hear the questions and answers uh, from a press conference earlier this week. I asked Grant Robertson about his views on whether or not uh, the government should um, impose a windfall profits tax on the electricity retailers to claim back some of these super profits and or use some of the dividends the government's received to invest in new generation for consumers. He's not that keen on the, that idea. And uh, we'll hear about that soon. But to start with, let's have a chat to the people who created the reports. Uh, uh, and here they are. Well, kia ora, and welcome to the Kaka, to uh, Craig Rennie, who is the Chief Economist at the CTU, and Edward Miller, who is a researcher for First Union. Thank you very much, guys, for coming on to the Kaka. Pleasure. Thanks. Morning. Um, Craig, I wanted to um, bring you both on, uh, but firstly yourself, to talk about the report that you've put out today called Generating Scarcity, How the Gentailers Hike Electricity Prices and Halt Decarbonisation. And I wondered if you could give for those people who, you know, they've got a power bill, they know that there are some companies that sell them power, um, but they're maybe not sure about how the market works and uh, how much money is being made and why it matters. So could you tell us what your report has found and why it matters for Joe and Josephine blogs with their power bill? Sure. Um, so um, first of all, I should really acknowledge um, Ed on the call and Aotearoa 350 um, who helped pull together um, the report. Um, what the report has shown is that the power companies, the gen tailors, as we call them in the trade, generator, retailer, um, they've produced uh, excess dividends. So that's money that they've paid to their shareholders, which is in excess of their profits. Over since partial privatization, that's risen to the tune of $3.7 billion. Now, over the same period, the generating capacity of New Zealand has actually remained flat at 10,000 megawatt hours per year. What that's meant is that we've seen money leave the door of the generators. We've seen no additional generation, but the, but the amount of generation that we get from oil, coal and gas is actually higher than we saw in 2018. So the report of the total says there's a lot of money leaving these companies. It's not going into the services or the systems that not only customers, but the economy needs and the planet needs. And we're not seeing the benefits as a country of having an efficient system. We have plenty of renewable energy in New Zealand. We have no shortage of renewable energy 
opportunities, but it's not getting invested in because that money is instead going to shareholders. As the crown is the largest shareholder, sorry, as the crown is the largest shareholder, we're seeing it has a role to play here in helping to fix that problem. I wanted to uh, bring in uh, Edward Miller here, who um, uh, was involved in producing the report, just to get a sense of um, how you pulled together the numbers, what your thesis was, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of different power companies and you could have chosen a particular start time and an end date. So tell us your method. Sure. I mean, all the numbers that are in the report are just taken from the company's respective annual reports, their financial reports. So, um, and I, I did a pretty close double check. I've got a spreadsheet that has every page marked. Um, so it sh it sh they should all be correct. Um, I guess my, my, my journey for wanting to do this, um, it would have begun around 2013 when I was connect collecting signatures for the citizens initiated referendum on asset sales, um, which was pretty comprehensively rejected. You know, two thirds of the country said they didn't want the asset sales to go through and they were pushed through by the key government at the time. And I'd always thought there was a role to play for a sort of a long-term analysis on what the financial impact of that had been, you know, whether the crown had benefited from it whether working people had benefited from it and whether the environment had benefited from it. That really came to a head this year when we saw um, that when taken together, the, the cumulative net profits of those big four generators had effectively doubled. Um, and there was a lot of commentary from particularly business journalists saying, well, you need to be looking more at some other figures like the earnings before interest and tax, et cetera. Um, because if you look at those numbers, it's it's a, more of a steady rise. We're not looking at a doubling of profits. It's you know just moving step by step. So I started digging into the figures and I did find that consistently over the previous couple of years, uh, when I when I took a sample of data, that the dividends consistently outpace profits. And that, that was when I thought, well, there's there's a story to be told here. Why is it that we have these billions of dollars going out the door to to shareholders um, without without having any expansion and generating capacity? And that was kind of the genesis of the report. Edward, could you tell us how the companies did that? Because I thought if you paid your shareholders more dividends than you earned in profit, eventually you wouldn't have any money left. But tell us how how it was possible. It's it's a form of magic, I think. Um, <laughs> the, it's, it's probably different um, for each firm on a year-to-year on -year basis, but these firms would have started with cash uh, in, in their accounts, and they can use the cash to pay those excess dividends in the short term. And I think this really began as sort of a response to the partial privatization itself, which was probably seen by the government as a failure. I remember Bill English talking walking around saying we're going to get somewhere between 5 and $7 billion for the sale of Half of these companies, they got less than that. 4.7 billion is what they ended up with. So they had to deliver high dividends for their shareholders so that they felt that things were going right from the outset, you know, that they were getting a good return on their investment. They had to sustain this over time, or sustaining share price over time meant they kept having to uh, provide those excess dividends. So the way they do that is in the short, they either call on their cash reserves and then pay that out, or they do a little bit of borrowing. They use that to fund the next excess dividend. And then as a result of that, they jack up the electricity price, which is uh, in turn pushes up the value of the generating assets, which means they can keep jacking up the electricity price. So there's this bizarre process. I said it's magic at the beginning where they're taking uh, the non-cash increase of their generating assets, which is being re-rated by accounting firms and then converting that into extra charges for consumers, which becomes extra dividends for their shareholders. What did you find with uh, charges for um, uh, consumers, household consumers? Because the power companies say that actual prices, the, the prices they charge, so not lines companies, but the prices they charge, haven't increased um, particularly quickly over the last five or six years. Uh, the last 20 years is a different story, but the last five or six years. Uh, I, I don't have data that would that I can respond to that immediately at this stage. Craig, do you have something? Yeah, I was going to say, certainly in terms of the um, electricity pricing, energy pricing, we've seen energy bills rise at approximately 20% faster than general um, inflation over the past 14 years. So um, energy bills have risen about 42%. Um, over the past 14 years, whereas general inflation has been around 35 
20% so consistently year after year. The other thing to note is that that's very unevenly distributed. So those on very uh, on, on low entry tariffs, um, those who uh, have very good uh, systems, which generally are better off households, they've faced lower bills than uh, low income households, those on prepayment meters and other forms of metering that uh, have faced higher and higher bills. And finally, domestic housing, domestic pricing has been going up much more quickly than industrial and commercial pricing, which has been going up far less than domestic pricing. Could you tell us, um, Craig, uh, how the power companies, who in theory are operating in a um, perfectly formed market uh, with wholesale prices, um, how they've managed to um, increase prices for their electricity for various people, given that um, all of the hydroelectric power which they have was already built and, and as you suggest, uh, net, uh, there hasn't been any extra generation into the market. Um, it's a great question and all that we had a perfect market for energy in New Zealand. Um, we actually have a market in terms of the pool um, of the electricity into the market where the last um, units of electricity sets the price for all of the electricity. So uh, generally speaking in New Zealand, the last unit of electricity into the pool, um, which is called the marginal unit, um, comes from thermal generation, from coal, gas, oil, or something in that nature. That's the most expensive generation in New Zealand. That means everyone who's got a hydro unit below it is paying less in terms of the cost of production, gets a much higher price um, in terms of the actual uh, price they, that they get from the uh, from Transcar. So that margin, it, it generates a very little incentive to supply electricity above the point at which thermal um, becomes viable. Because if, if coal, oil or gas stops being in the system, the price falls for everyone because it's the least expensive unit in the marketplace. So that in part explains the lack of additional investments in generation because nobody is incentivized to provide the energy generation, the renewable energy generation into the market because it would lower the price for every producer in the marketplace, which would be benefit, of course, households, it would benefit communities, it would benefit workplaces. Um, but for providers, it actually means that they've got this, this incentive to be hooked on fossil fuels. And that being hooked on fossil fuels creates this self-reinforcing cycle, as Ed referred to earlier, in terms of pricing creates uh, both dividends, but it also creates reasons to revalue assets, which in turn creates reasons to keep fossil fuels, which in turn creates reasons to keep assets high. So that's the reason why, because the, that, that thermal energy creates a, 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 a little bit of cream on top for all of the providers, and nobody has any incentive to remove the ball of cream from those providers right now. So um, as someone who was trained in economics, I thought that if the price was high, that would encourage new players or existing players to increase their production because there was some good profit to be made, particularly if you could find some generation, solar, maybe wind, which is much cheaper, cheaper to produce than that marginal price. So I would have thought with these high wholesale marginal prices, there was an incentive for someone, even someone outside the big four or five, to jump in, you know, produce a lot of solar power and cream it. So why hasn't that happened? Because these are very long-lived assets with very high barriers to entry. They require or the order of hundreds of millions of dollars to invest up front, and you receive a return over 30, 40 years. Um, there may be an incentive, but it's less than the incentive gained by keeping the market structure as it is now. And so the very bold, bold cost-benefit analysis is that if you keep the market structure that you have now, um, that's cheaper for the providers to do so, which, has, which, which keeps their levels of profit, rather than someone entering the field as a disruptor, bringing new generation into the marketplace, and then hoping to see a return over 50 years, because they have to wait 50 years for that return, and instead, they could just simply keep the generation that they have now and continue to see the profits that they have now. Just to give you an example of what that means in practice, Meridian's profit last year rose 600%. Um, we saw you know, energy companies' profits generally double last year. So they've got an incentive to keep the market exactly where it is now and to not have anyone 
come into the marketplace and bring any form of new generation on. So what's stopping a, a completely new player uh, coming in? Because these um, solar farms in particular are cheaper and easier to um, get started than, you know, a resource can seem for a dam. It Sorry, Ed, go on. I was just going to say there have been a couple of announcements within just the last couple of weeks, particularly in the space of offshore wind, where there are big new players that are wanting to set up really big projects. I mean, they're sort of pre, um, pre-consented at this stage, so we don't know whether they're going to proceed. And they look like very, very big projects. We're talking five, seven billion dollars a pop. Um, so they're long lived, as Craig was referring to, and, and it takes a long time to get the return. There are, uh, there are a couple of um, wind farms that are supposed to be going ahead at the moment. I think the interesting thing about all of these projects is that the investment is not coming from the gentailers. They're, they're coming from outside and they're coming from large capital funds that are looking for a return on investment, which they will get, but it's long-term capital investment. Um, so, 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 Edward, um, what do you think the government should do then? Um, because on the face of it, they're collecting their 51% of the dividends from the three companies that they still own, Meridian, Genesis, and Mercury, which used to be called Mighty River Power. And uh, Treasury must be um, looking at that thinking, brilliant, we can reduce our debt, we can have smaller deficits. Surely that's a good thing. <laughs> so we make a series of recommendations in the report, um, which speak to those concerns. The, the first one is that we think that the government has the major shareholder of those three gen tailors of uh, Meridian, Mercury and, and Genesis should exercise that power and they should set a minimum profit reinvestment target. And they can do this either by way of policy or they can just go to the shareholder meetings and, and put forward a resolution which they could move themselves. Um, we're considering maybe trying to get hold of some shares and putting forward our own resolutions to that effect and, and getting um, government to try and support those. But we think that would have quite an immediate impact in terms of redirecting the capital flows. So money starts going directly into, into projects, considering you know there's 2,000 megawatts worth of consented wind projects, uh, most of them by the Gen Taylors at the moment. The next recommendation that we had is that any dividend that comes from uh, these from these companies in the future that the government receives should go into buying back those shares in the long term, and hopefully, if if the first um, if if we get a minimum profit reinvestment target in place, that would uh, decrease the value of those shares. So buying it back wouldn't be so expensive in the future. Um, another, we we also have some sort of windfall profit uh, windfall tax. Uh, suggestions. And, and one of those is to say that, well, the government should invest the equivalent of the excess dividend that it's taken into household and community energy projects. So we reduce the reliance on these big four market players and encourage that sort of um, community resilience. And finally, to levy uh, <clears throat> the remaining excess dividend uh, that, that the companies themselves have taken or that, that has been distributed to the private shareholders, levy that and use that to fill the gap that government is getting from not having the, the dividends coming from the companies. So the excess dividend that government takes on an annual basis looks to be about $150 million. Uh, the amount that the that um, they've distributed to private shareholders is about $2.6 billion, sorry, $2.3 billion. That's 20 years worth of covering that that excess dividend missing missing finance. Uh, Craig, um, one of the arguments put forward by the gen tailors is that demand for electricity has been relatively flat in recent years. And also they had a lot of uncertainty about a big chunk of power coming onto the market from Rio Tinto. And that's why they were reluctant to really go for it on investing in new capacity for the future. Um, we're still uncertain about uh, Rio Tinto, and uh, the Gentailers obviously feared that if Rio Tinto shut down, they'd have to um, dump that power onto the market, which would reduce prices and make it less um, profitable for them to um, produce power. What's your argument back to the companies who say, you know, um, yeah, nice idea about building all this extra generation, but every time um, we look, we see that people are uh, consuming slightly less. And uh, if we pump billions of dollars into some new 
plants and then suddenly Rio Tinto pulls out, um, we're going to get hammered for years. I think there's two responses um, to that. The first one of which is that climate change um, is very predictable, is here, and 20% 20, 20 of our generation remains thermal, remains oil, gas, diesel. So there's, there's been absolutely no reason why generators couldn't have kept the same level of generation, but move that away from thermal generation towards renewable generation. That would have provided uh, climate benefits, that would have provided resilience benefits. It would mean we import less um, dirty Indonesian coal um, and oil, and it would have meant actually that we had a more secure network for electricity. So climate change is a, is a actually pretty um, uh, convincing reason why we should be moving from one form to the other. Um, secondly, in terms of the general um, profits question, um, the question we have to ask is, to what extent do we expect demand to go up in the future? And every projection that we have for electricity demand in New Zealand is that electricity demand is going to pretty much uh, double, triple um, over the next uh, few decades as we move towards an electric car fleet, as you move towards increasing levels of use of electricity to heat our homes, to heat uh, businesses, um, in, the, uh, in industrial processes where we move away from coal with dairying, for example, and elsewhere. So there's, a, there's every incentive to move towards extra electricity generation, not only um, uh, because we actually need it, because we expect demand to rise significantly in the future, but if we make that renewable, we not only lower bills, we actually make it more sustainable and more secure for businesses and households in the future. Uh, just finally, uh, Edward, uh, um, what do you think is going on here with the government, who've been in power now for five years, who got into government in 2017 arguing that this was a problem, that the electricity companies were making um, super dividends and not investing enough in new uh, generation, and they held an electricity price review, um, yet nothing much has changed. What What's going on here? Uh, so one kind of response to that would be to say that they're quite happy to sit on the money that comes in to Treasury, enjoying the benefits of those dividends. I think it's probably more along the lines of they've, they've got quite a few balls in the air. Every ball that they throw into the air from this point onwards as we head towards the, the next election means that they have to win the argument and win the argument again. And they can't keep winning all the arguments at the same time. Well, maybe they can keep winning all the arguments at the same time. And I happen to think this is a really good one that the, that the government could come out and win if they, if they, if they put pe working people in climate interests first. Um, but all of those things take more effort, more more engagement, more more working groups, and all of those kind of things that they that the government gets criticised from the right for. So, I, I think look, there's a series of agendas here that are stacked on top of each other. I think this is a, a winning campaign. Sort of hits on cost of living issues, hits on climate crisis issues, and will we'll deliver a whole bunch of votes to government if they if they take it seriously from from particularly young people who are concerned about these issues. Uh, but they have to really engage with it. And just finally for uh, Craig, um, I, I've got a mortgage, I'm in the suburbs, I'm a median voter, all I care about is getting inflation and interest rates down, and if the government chooses to have lower dividends and therefore slightly higher budget deficits, uh, all other things being equal, that means my interest rates are, are higher. Um, and I make most of my uh, money and savings from uh, tax-free capital gains on residential property, and therefore, sure, if my my power bill's $100 more a, a, a year, uh, th that pales in significance into the benefits I get for slightly lower interest rates than would otherwise be the case. So um, how does the government argue against that, you know, it's always, always about reducing deficits, reducing interest rates, because who cares about how much you pay for your power or how much money you make from your job? Um, the real game in New Zealand is unearned tax-free gains on residential land values, and anything that gets in the way of that is verboten. Uh, it's an argument we've heard many times, Bernard, um, in terms of, you know, whether or not um, we need to move our entire economy away from one, which essentially is a housing market with other bits tacked on, as one journalist put them. Um, and we need to uh, to move um, towards an economy that's much more productive, sustainable and inclusive, because actually in the long run, that's the only game in town, because we can't continue to deliver the kinds of economy that we have to date, because if we do, we'll run out of money. 
and we'll run out of other people's money. Um, and, as, and we will, as an economy, um, focus very narrowly on essentially stripping wealth increasingly from everyone to a very narrow group of individuals. We've already seen over the past two decades what that's done to the country. So uh, as a government, this is about signaling that actually, yes, there is a cost, but the benefit in the long run is so enormous, it far outweighs the cost. And if you don't pay that cost today, your children will, because that cost is exactly the same as a liability for your kids. Because if you don't pay it, they will, either in the form of climate change, either in the form of more um, unstable electricity, or in the form of more expensive electricity, or in the cost of uh, the economy and incomes and jobs foregone, because we haven't made the investments in the infrastructure that we need. So in reality, the cost-benefit analysis runs the other way, is that if we make the investments now to move towards the kinds of low-carbon, uh, high-tech, high-skills jobs that we need to see, and away from the land-based economy that we have right now, then actually we'll deliver quantum sizable differences in the value of our economy and well-being for workers, rather than just continuing to pile up debt on mortgages across the country. Uh, Craig Rennie from the CTU and Edward Miller from uh, First Union, thank you so much for being on the Kaka. And uh, we've got a link to the full report uh, in the article and email that has gone out with this podcast. So I decided to ask a few questions of Grant Robertson, who was standing in for Jacinda Ardern at the post-cabinet news conference this week. Here's that exchange. Minister, um, there's a report out today from the CTU and from First Union on electricity industry profits and dividends, including the three Gen Taylors the government owns. Um, do you agree that they have paid out too much in dividends and not invested enough in renewable generation in the last eight years? Yeah, look, there's a lot of factors in what, what people do in terms of dividend. It's not entirely based around profits. Obviously, it's around cash flow, and there are other things that uh, the energy companies need to deal with. In terms of the point around investment and generation, I mean, there's huge a number of proposals out there at the moment for renewable generation that don't come particularly from the gen tailors. And I think over time, you might see that that is the way that the energy system develops. You know, there are players, including Kiwi Solar Farms, Blue Float Energy, Todd Sun Energise, Elemental Group, um, Lodestone. These are people who are all looking at major renewable investments, as well as the main um, electricity companies looking at that. So I haven't had time minute yet to study the report in detail, um, but I do think renewable investment will come in many different forms over the next few years. The, um, the report writers have again called for a windfall tax on um, the electricity uh, sector. Uh, what's your view on that? Yeah, again, I, I, I want to take a bit of time to have a look at this. As I've said more broadly on the topic of windfall taxes, um, it is important to make sure that we understand what the windfall is, um, whether or not it is a genuine you know, windfall from an event or from some uh, something that has caused the profits to rise as opposed to some of the longer-term structural settings that we've got. Um, but I will take the time to read the report, and I continue to say what I've previously said, that at a time where cost of living is high, we have expectations upon our large companies to bear in mind the position of their customers. Is there a case that those big firms be required, though, to, to reinvest a proportion of those profits New generation. Yeah, well, it's important to say that the position we're in at this time is that those decisions are not made by politicians. Those decisions are made by the boards of those entities. They are independent of us in that regard. Yeah, and as I say, that would require a significant shift in policy. It's not something that we've contemplated. Um, and, you know, we know right now that we're at a period of time where where there's a lot of pressure on the consumers of, of those companies. So we, we bear that in mind, but we haven't got a proposal to change it at this point. There's been other um, competitors of the Gen Taylors and the major, major electricity users group uh, who've argued the industry structure needs to be reformed. Um, why hasn't the government um, reformed the structure, which appears to allow these big established Gen Taylors to um, not invest and uh, pay 
bigger dividends than profits and gear up their debt? Yeah, look, I think I think first the first thing I'd say is that in terms of the period of the report, actual price rises since 2014, uh, I think it's been about 8.6% in um, nominal terms and in real terms there's actually been a fall in the prices. So the prices that consumers pay is one element um, to bear in mind in that regard. If we're talking about generation, as I say, I believe that there is a lot of proposals out there for generation. Um, the gen tailors themselves obviously need to make consideration for where they think investment should go. From the government's perspective, you know, we are we're very focused on issues like solving the dry year problem to make sure that the dry year hydrological problem to make sure that we can actually put ourselves in a position to be a genuinely renewable uh, energy country. And so our focus has been there. And then finally, I would say that you know we do have a rather full dance card when it comes to major reforms of structural parts of the economy. So there was Grant Robertson. Uh, the government is busy with various other structural reforms and uh, doesn't seem too concerned about the effects on either consumers or investment and is happy to take the money because lower government deficits mean lower interest rates, mean elevated house prices for median voters. Now, it's worth sometimes uh, jumping out and having a chat to people who are closer to consumers than I, are, I am. And one thing the government has done over the last um, three or four years is run what it calls an electricity price review. There were great hopes for this. There was talk about structural separation and changing the wholesale market and all sorts of things. But the um, various players involved in the status quo uh, worked hard and eventually not much came of it. One thing that did come from it, though, was the creation of a Consumer Advocacy Council. So this is a very lightly funded organisation there to keep an eye on the electricity sector from a consumer's point of view and to effectively advocate on behalf of consumers in this process of uh, regulation of the sector in which the regulator owns most of it and benefits from its current way of operation. So I thought I'd have a chat to this new Consumer Advocacy Council chair, Deborah Hart, and I spoke to her today. Kia and welcome to the kaka to Deborah Hart, who is the relatively new um, uh, head of the Consumer Advocacy Council, which was uh, created out of the electricity price review uh, done a few years ago. Um, welcome, Deborah. Great to see you and hear you. Kia I wondered, uh, as someone who keeps an eye on the industry from a consumer's point of view, what you thought of the report that came out this week from First Union CTU and 350 Aotearoa, which said that the big four gen tailors had, in effect, uh, paid uh, $3.5 or so extra in dividends on top of their profits, and that the electricity market wasn't necessarily working either for consumers or to invest in new renewable uh, energy uh, supply. I wonder what your, your thoughts were. Well, it adds to the knowledge that we that we have, um, and when you think about it in relation to some of the other things that we know, it's it's painting a bit of a picture. So uh, this year, the um, net profits from the five gen tailors. 821 um, million net profits, uh, a steep increase on the year before. Uh, we have the Electricity Authority saying that uh, the that each and every household was subsidising uh, TY point to the extent of $200 per household per annum. Uh, you have uh, our survey coming out last week in which uh, one in four, uh, only one in four 
uh, uh, consumers said they thought they were getting good value for money from retailers. We know we're in a period of high inflation. We know that. We know that electricity prices are going up. We know that uh, there are increasing numbers of people in energy hardship. Uh, we know there's increasing electrification. Uh, and we know from this last winter that there seems to have been, uh, you know, we came pretty close to um, some some outages. So things seem to be getting um, very tight. And we hear from smaller retailers that they're feeling particularly uh, squeezed. And we know that we have no energy strategy and we won't have one until the end of 2024. Um, so these are all things um, uh, that we that we know. Uh, and so this latest report adds to that body of knowledge uh, and says to us, well, something might not be working as well as it should. What's your view on, on whether consumers um, have received uh, some of the benefits in, of the improved uh, uh, financial performance of some of these companies um, and, and also uh, whether or not the market is operating well to encourage new production, which we're told we'll need as we electrify the economy? Mm-hmm. Well, look, we speak for consumers and when three quarters of them tell us that they don't think they're getting good value for money, uh, their worries are our worries. Uh, And so we offer that to the electricity sector. Uh, you know, if, if I was in business and I heard that three quarters of my consumers didn't think I was getting good value for money, I'd be really worried about that. Uh, another thing that consumers tell us is that they want three things. They want reliable, sustainable and affordable electricity. Uh, so we need to be really focused on delivering that. Um, to go to your broader question about the market. I mean, there's there's all kinds of fixes that uh, various um, entities and people are saying are the the fixes, and we will have more to say uh, on that uh, next month when we um, finish a major bit of work. But we are troubled by what we are, are certainly seeing and hearing. On that, uh, you've done a particular survey of consumers on this to understand uh, how they not only feel, but um, what they're actually doing in their homes um, because of affordability issues. What, what did you find in that survey? Well, we found that um, one of two people are only heating the room they're in. About the same number are putting on extra clothes. Uh, about a third have cut back on their heating. Uh, over um, about a quarter are frequently turning off heating uh, and a quarter cut back on hot showers and using hot water. Now, you might put all that together and say, well, that's the sensible thing to do. We should all be cutting down on electricity. Uh, And that's an obvious, that's true. Um, But when you think about all of those things together, and it is... Uh, and that is even more true of people who are in rented accommodation. It points to the energy hardship that we know is in the community. Uh, and I'd invite your listeners to think about how they would feel if they could not get up in the morning and have a hot shower. Uh, you know, when you put all of that evidence together uh, and that out of nine household bills, what consumers told us is that um, power bills were their fourth highest concern. Uh, It was behind uh, food, uh, behind uh, vehicle costs and mortgage rent. Then came electricity. Um, And so we know that what a lot of people are doing is not taking a hot shower, uh, not turning on the heating in favor of eating. They are, you know, it's that thing that we know about, will I heat or will I eat? Uh, And I don't think any of us want people to be having to make those kinds of decisions because electricity is an essential service. And 
It's interesting to see the decision-making and the prioritisation that's going on here, particularly at a very high level in government, because the government obviously benefits from the dividends they're receiving from the 51% stakes they have in three of the big four gen tailors, mm-hmm. and they are Meridian, Mercury, and uh, Genesis. And Treasury uh, have in the past recommended that the government extract as high dividends as they can and the higher prices possible for the 49% stake that was sold, soft stakes that were sold in 2014 or so. Um, but you do wonder if the cost-benefit analysis is being done by Treasury about the um, long-term impacts on people's health, uh, well-being, uh, and our potential carbon liabilities in future if uh, our industry um, passes on the costs of those high dividends in the form of higher than otherwise would be the case prices, and also if it delays or doesn't invest in renewable to the point where in 2030 or 40 we have to pay billions and billions in carbon credits. I just wonder if there's a... Uh, um, penny-wise, pound-foolish problem here at the top of government? Yes, you do You do have to wonder whether those settings are right and whether the, the government really needs to reconsider uh, what, what, it's, what it's doing with, with its stake in those, those big gene tailors. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure there, is, there are a lot of conversations uh, going on about that, or at least I would hope there are a lot of conversations going on about that. And what I'd say to to government and to the electricity sector is they really need to be, you know, really consumer-centric about this. You know, we've set ourselves some really um, important targets um, in terms of sustainability uh, and you know, we need to ensure that the settings are right. And it's not just about, um, you know, looking at the, the money side of the equation, uh, because electricity is an essential service. You keep coming back to that. Um, and we need to make sure that everyone has it at an affordable price. And we need to be able to tra- transition. Uh, and we're in, we're in a... We're actually in the middle of that transition now, um, and there's great flux. Um, so I, I think there's a, a challenging problem to be solved, uh, and consumers have to be at the very heart of it. Deborah Hart, um, who is uh, uh, looking after the Consumer Advocacy Council. Deborah, thank you very much for being on the Kaka. Thank you. So there we have it. There's the consumer's point of view. I'm Bernard Hickey. This has been a good old deep dive into the electricity sector, an update on the problems we face with a quadrupoly, if you like, running the electricity sector down, essentially consuming the assets built over the 30 years or so until 1990 and not reinvesting in renewable generation because it makes financial sense right now, not just for shareholders, but for politicians and for the Treasury. The frustration for me is that a a broader accounting of the costs and benefits of the relative choices here would see, from a Treasury point of view, that if we don't invest in renewable electricity, and in warm, dry homes and being able to cater for the extra people that are here now and are likely to come in future, particularly in our position as a moderately climatic country where 100 million people will want to come to from unlivable places on the planet. We have to think about um, electrifying our economy faster apart from anything else, because it's cheaper. And that all involves choices about investing in the future. First thing the Treasury could do is start looking at advising the government on the long-term costs of not meeting our 
climate obligations under the Paris Agreement and the potential billions and billions of carbon credits that we're going to have to buy to ensure that we can still be part of the civilised world. And also the missed opportunity in uh, productivity gains, well-being gains, justice, health, transport uh, gains from electrifying our economy faster. Simply taking the assumption that lower debt and lower deficits is always, always good and better than the alternative is 1991 thinking back when we did have a foreign debt problem, when we'd only just adopted a floating currency and our government uh, had only barely started selling its own New Zealand dollar-denominated bonds. We are in a completely different situation now. And the Treasury and the politicians, in my view, should start to think a lot more about their kids and grandkids being here in a good position because those grandkids and kids have agency too. They know where they can have lives and begin lives and lead healthy lives and do the right thing by the climate. And if it's not here, they'll go. Now, so far, that's not been too much of an issue for New Zealand. We now have the second highest proportion of our population who lives overseas permanently, diaspora, just behind Portugal, by the way. And that's because for 30 years we've chosen today over tomorrow. And the kids and the grandkids of today know it. Well, I can see it in the 30 to 40% lower wages that they get, the brutally high living costs and the barely there disposable income after paying housing costs uh, and where their only hope of having a future is to either marry into wealth or to hope that their parents somehow have it. And then for those parents to hand over the deposits and ensure that the son-in-law or the daughter-in-law is good enough. On that friendly note, I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. Kaki Kaki